0: All righty.
1: Well, good evening, everybody.
0: All right. Everybody, uh, everybody good to go? Well, good evening, y'all. Thanks for coming, y'all, all all y'all, right? Doesn't quite roll off the tongue even still, but it's getting there. So, all right. Well, it's good to see everybody, and uh, we'll go ahead and pray. We'll we'll dive in. Uh, It's good that you're all here. It's good good that you can make it out and spend some time together. I have to tell you, when we uh, were at our old church in Illinois, our uh, Wednesday night midweek was like that's not me, is it? I don't think it'll do it when this is on, so it should be all right. Um, but our midweek like was our favorite thing because it was just like this and you could hang out a little bit and it was just seemed a lot less formal and it's uh try to bring that into sunday mornings but it's almost impossible really in a larger group but in this kind of a group it's pretty nice to be sort of laid back like this so it's always good to get together with y'all thanks for being here so all right carl's doing okay he is okay there you go he is hiking through the, the glaciers and uh on the east side or west side i forget
1: Oh, goodness, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like it's East Side. St. Mary's, wherever that is. Yeah,
0: I feel like it's the opposite of where we were. Yeah. So, yeah. He, but he's
2: hiking because he has that uh, neuropathy, but, but he's been doing okay. He's been doing okay. Good. doing a night hike today. Right on. Oh, Praise well.
0: the Lord. Wow. That is awesome. That's amazing. <laughs> I, uh, I walked with him one morning uh, some months ago and stuff, and uh, and he asked me, like, what pace I go at and that, because he, like, jogs and runs and all this kind of stuff, and i and I said, well, I, I walk fast, you know. And So he he toned it down for me so I could keep up. And, uh, he's. Uh, and
2: y'all walked a long way.
0: We did go a long way. I felt it probably a lot more than he did.
2: So <laughs> Next you'll have to go bike riding with Bob. How long do you ride every day? Oh, my. Oh, about 10 miles, but I haven't. Wow. I didn't ride today.
3: Oh, good. Oh. That's yeah. good. That
0: was too Yeah. <laughs> wow. Got a bunch of athletes in our church here. That's pretty awesome. All right, well, let's pray. We'll go ahead and worship for a bit. Father, we thank you for our time tonight and pray that you bless it, uh, that, Father, you would be with us and that uh, by your Holy Spirit, you'd help us as we worship and as we spend time in your word to, uh, to draw close to you, to get a fresh sense of who you are, to be reminded of who you are, that we'd recognize you in your glory and your awesomeness. We would be humbled by that, but we'd also recognize the invitation you've given us to come and to draw near. Thank you, Lord, that you've called us to come and uh, come before the very throne of grace to obtain mercy in our time of need. We thank you that you have taken us from being outcasts and rebels and have instead made us sons and daughters. And we're so grateful and thankful for the opportunity to be together and to celebrate these things and to worship you for these things. And so be glorified and blessed and praised as we sing these songs to you. And uh, and we pray that, Father, as we open your word together, that you would Help our time and our conversation around it to be encouraging and and uplifting and building. That, Lord, you'd work through uh, the teaching of your word tonight and and just allow those seeds to germinate in our hearts and bear tremendous fruit for your glory. And so we love you, Lord, and thank you for this time. Pray that, again, you'd bless it and that it would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Sorry about that. relationship that is marked by joy no longer do we have to fear no longer do we have to live in a place that uh, are kind of a, uh, a state of, of of concern and fear that things are never going to change or never going to get better one day they're going to be radically better in the twinkling of an eye and we thank you for that hope and we pray that as we spend this time together and we open your word that lord you'd remind us that you're with us and that your promises are sure <coughs> that our place in you is secure and that, Father, your love for us never fails or fades. So draw us close to you. And help us also, as we study these things in this particular book, to recognize the importance of guarding the truth of these things, guarding the purity of these things, so that our hope would be well-placed, well-established, and not uh, misguided or misled in any way. Thank you, Father. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. Well, good to see you all again. We are in Jude. By the way, uh, you notice Scott's not here tonight. It's actually Wendy's mom had some dinner, and they're hanging out a little bit tonight. He didn't mention they might actually tune in, though. So, All right, so we're in Jude. We're in Jude. Uh, again, there's one chapter in life, and so I'm just going to dive right in, okay? That's one thing. As Jude is talking about false teachers, he now uh to, uh, through example, a few examples of those who rebelled against God and the fact that God dealt with it. But we're going to look at some nuances of each of these examples as we make our way through. And so with that said, how's that for a short preamble? So we're in verse 5. Now last time we talked about how that generation that left Egypt ultimately died in Egypt and they didn't enter the promised land. Uh, it was their unbelief that ultimately caused them not to enter in. Uh, and the Promised Land, by the way, is not heaven. What is the Promised Land representative of? Okay. Canaan. right? And what is, what is like a typical of? What's it a metaphor for? Oh, uh, it's actually a metaphor. It can be used as a metaphor for the Christian life or the life lived by faith. Uh, you recall how when they enter Promised Land, uh, they faced giants, they faced obstacles, and every time the call was to trust God and to allow Him to sort of give them direction or go before them and those kinds of things. And, uh, and, and when they did, they did well. When they didn't, they failed, right? And there's something to be said about the idea. As a matter of fact, Peter alludes to the idea of crossing the Jordan and equates it with the idea of like by baptism and that kind of thing. And so you enter into not heaven. Of course, it's not heaven primarily. We know that's not the analogy because there's fighting and battles and struggles. That's not heaven, right? So we know that's not what that's a type of, and no matter what the songs might say and that kind of thing. But really, it deals with the life of faith. And so they could not enter, fittingly, because they didn't believe. They didn't believe. The only two who did enter in, Joshua and Caleb, were those who did, right? And so we see an analogy there. Now, uh, Jude uses that example last time to talk about how their unbelief ultimately kept them out and that kind of thing. He continues now, and in verse 5, uh, now I desire to, or verse 6 actually, um, and the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So let's start right off with, uh, with, with something bizarre, okay? Um, what is he alluding to? Genesis chapter 6, right? Let's turn there just for a moment for anyone who might be unfamiliar, whether here or maybe watching. uh, Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land that the the daughters were born to them, That the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, the giants, and also afterward, interesting, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those uh, Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And this precedes the flood that comes soon after. So, Jude is alluding to a period of time that by and large in the modern day has been viewed one of two ways. Uh, the sons of God that came into the daughters of men and had children with them, these children became known as the Nephilim, these, uh, these men of renown, these uh, giants really, Um, some see that as speaking of the godly line of Seth and, uh, you know, as opposed to the ungodly line and this kind of thing. And so when you see the description of the Nephilim, uh, I'll borrow from Chuck Missler, it's one thing to call our kids little monsters. (laughs) It's a different thing when they actually are, literally are. Uh, these are giants. Uh, the various, uh, based on which cubit you decide to use and all that kind of thing, they were anywhere between 7 and 10 feet tall. Um, they existed prior to the flood, and they, may, they are likely the reason, ultimately, for the flood. Uh, it's not just that man was so bad that God brought a flood and started over. Uh, it's very possible, and, and, and by the way, Many of the early, early, early commentators of these things, not just Christian, but even Jewish commentators for centuries, have always seen it, not as the godly line of Seth, but in fact, just as it reads. that something extremely, extraordinarily unnatural took place. And the result of it was extraordinarily unnatural. Now, you'll notice it says there were in those days Nephilim and also afterward, Okay, prior to the flood and also after the flood. One very notable descendant of the Anakim, which were descendants ultimately in connection with these, with these giants, was a man named Goliath. Okay, we trace, we can, you can do various uh, searches to see the connection of the dots between the, uh, the Nephilim, the Rephaim, the Anakim, the Elim. There's a number of different names and associations made between these groups and potentially different races, but they all have a common connection. And it takes place in this bizarre happening that took place prior to the flood. Uh, I emphasize the fact that it's not just that man was wicked, man was contaminated. Now, what has been Satan's strategy in regard to the Christ from the beginning? To keep him from coming, right? Um, You'll notice that as you make your way through the Old Testament genealogies, that as the family line of the Messiah becomes more and more clear, there are periodical attempts by Satan to undermine it in some way. Whether it's a king cursed to the 10th generation or whether it's this event taking place in Genesis 6, there's a very concerted effort to keep him from coming. Of course, Satan knows a Messiah was going to come because in Genesis 3.15 the promise is made. The seed of the woman right? That's a bizarre statement in itself. It's it's not the seed of the woman, it's the seed of the man that produces a child, right? Ultimately with the woman. The woman doesn't have the seed, the man does, but there is something odd in this description of this one who would ultimately come through the seed of the woman, and Satan keyed in on that throughout history, ultimately uh, being thwarted. He didn't succeed in it, but Peter here points to this bizarre example, and he talks about how these uh, These angels who did not keep their proper estate. Now, of course, people have a hard time. There are those that that really have a hard time with the the Nephilim thing and, and, you know, sons of uh, angels and women and children being born to them because there is this this sense that, you know, angels can't physically do that, right? Um, Never mind the idea of marriage or being given in marriage. Um, Angels in their normal estate are not. Jesus said that, right? Um, but in terms of their uh, attempts to whether possess outwardly or however it was that they maybe they tampered with the gene pool in some way to, to do this, we don't really know. Just to bring it out a little further in terms of bizarreness, um, Jude will make reference to what is called the Book of Enoch, and he'll talk about I'll quote from it, talk about ten thousands of the Lord's saints coming to return with him in that, and that's a direct quote from this Book of Enoch. Well. In the Book of Enoch as well, or the books, I should say, that's actually the Book of Enoch is a comp- uh, comprising of a number of different books, but in the Book of Enoch, there is, there is the story of the watchers. The watchers are these beings who descended from the heavens, these angels who descended and basically taught men uh, all kinds of skills, whether it be alchemy or whether it be metalworking, whether it be all of the sciences, medicines, and that kind of thing. This is what's purported in this. I'm not saying this is necessarily true. Um, but there are lots of ancient records that give credence to this idea. And so it's not biblical, by the way. The, 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 the book of Enoch is not scripture. It's not inspired. I want to make that clear. This is not a book that we look at as being divinely inspired. And I'm not even, I'm not even necessarily saying that any of it is true. Uh, some of you may have heard of Michael Heiser. He's written uh, kind of extensively on this subject. He's kind of big on this field right now. Um, But strictly speaking, it's not Scripture and that kind of thing. Um, But part of the reason why people give some credence to it is because of the events that took place in Genesis 6. There's some explanation, some of these archangels that are mentioned that are on the side of doing the bidding of the Lord, but there's also these fallen angels who went on to teach man so many of the things that ultimately with the intent of corrupting mankind and that kind of thing. They make an association between these ideas. It's important for us to recognize that Scripture is our guide, not external books, whether it be this Book of Enoch, Book of Jasher, or other things that claim to be, you know, potentially connected with with Scripture. Even though people in Scripture seem to be aware of many of these writings. You know, again, Jude quotes in the Book of Enoch, right? So he's obviously read it. He's familiar with it. Uh, you can get a copy of the Book of Enoch at, you know, on Amazon. I've got one I've had for about 30 years, 20 years or so, but it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's clearly not scripture. I mean, it doesn't even begin to read like scripture. It reads like, sort of like Dante's Inferno or something like that. Um, it also doesn't go back to the Enoch that it purports to be. Uh, generally, it's associated with Enoch who is seventh from Adam, who lived 365 years, was the father of Methuselah, after which came the flood. Um, however, uh, the oldest extant copies or uh, manuscripts of it really go back to the intertestamental period. And so uh, they are not necessarily truly connected to the author whose name they bear, but they are interesting reading. And the reason I bring it up and spend a little time talking about it is because Jude quotes from it, and that makes for an interesting thing. Um, however, that being said, it's not unusual for the New Testament writers to quote from Uh, external sources, non-biblical sources. On Mars Hill, Paul quoted some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers, or or some of their, not it wasn't really one of them, but it was uh, um, Aenean, I think, I forget the the Greek philosopher's name he quotes when he talks about how we're all God's offspring and this kind of thing. Um, Peter um, uh, refers to hell as Tartarus, the domain of the dead, not only a, a physical location in Greek, mythology but also the name of the being who is Tartarus and this kind of thing but Peter makes reference to it Uh, one of the words for hell in Peter's writing is actually the Greek word Tartarus which is a reference to Greek mythology and so that shouldn't rattle us it's just they're they're drawing from sources that people are familiar with in their time they're not giving credence to these things and saying that they're legit in all that they wrote but insofar as they may give a connection to sharing some truth from from God's revelation they use them um, like, for example, again, Jude, when he quotes this, uh, this book of Enoch, that doesn't mean that the book of Enoch is inspired necessarily, but the truth of that quote clearly is led by the Holy Spirit. We understand it's there in the scripture. Um, but that being said, um, when Jude makes reference to this period of time, it is admittedly a very odd and bizarre event. However, Uh, It might, again, just to kind of finish a thought I started a moment ago, it might surprise you to know that that was the majority view up until recent times, uh, when it seemed a little weird, and so how could that really be like that? But the truth is, it was almost unanimously and universally the explanation of that passage up until modern times. Um, So there's some some heft to it. Um, So that being said, what is Jude saying here? The angels who did not keep their own domain, but again, abandoned their proper abode, he's kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Simply put, he's talking in, again, this is all in relation to false teachers and misleading. Again, part of the reason I mention all those stories is because the story behind these events from the book of Enoch as they're connected is the idea of angels fallen and misleading mankind and ultimately seeking their destruction. Well, God judges that. There will be judgment upon that. Now, of course, we do know there are fallen angels, right? Whether or not Enoch is correct in any of his assessment of these things, we know there are. Satan, for example, the fallen angel, right? In the book of Revelation, we see that there is a third of the angels that are ultimately led by him away. Uh, We see this throughout the scripture. Um, We see uh, demonic activity. Uh, There seems to be a difference between a fallen angel and a demon. There seem to be characteristics that are somewhat unique, kind of like angels in some way. There are differences and distinctions, but they are evil. We can simply succinctly just put it that way. There is demonic activity that takes place. Uh, Daniel, uh, as he is praying, uh, Gabriel comes to see him, but Gabriel was fighting and Michael came alongside to help him uh, for three weeks while Daniel prayed. Uh, legit spiritual warfare, the, the prince of Persia squared off against them and ultimately held Gabriel back from bringing the interpretation of the dream or the, uh, this message, this vision, this prophecy. And so uh, all that to simply say really two things. First off, we ought not take spiritual warfare lightly. matter of fact, Jude will again point to it in just a moment with Michael and Satan. But we also recognize that those who are on the side of evil Those who are bent on leading people astray, ultimately toward their destruction, God will judge that harshly. God will deal with that. That is not something that he abides. Eventually, there will be a reckoning for these things. So when Jude writes these words, and if any of these false teachers catch wind of it, it's not only a warning for the reader that is a believer, but it's also a warning to the false teacher that they are standing under God's condemnation for what they're doing. Um, false teaching is that important. It's that important to call out and to see it for what it is. Uh, I know we've been banging that drum for the three studies so far in that, but let me bang it just a couple more times. Truth matters. And when we distort the truth, especially as pertains to the gospel, the nature of God, the person of Christ, his deity, his divine nature, and his humanity, when we change these ideas or make them something that they're not, We're misleading people when we teach these things, when we express these ideas. Uh, Bob, for example, has got a book on Mormonism because someone he knows is a Mormon, and he's about to send some resources out there. Why would you spend time sending stuff to a Mormon? Isn't it just okay they believe whatever they want? Well, they have a right to, clearly. Everybody's got a right to believe whatever they want. But you know something? That person's not going to heaven based on those beliefs because they're false. They're misleading. Joseph Smith was a false prophet. He led people astray, millions of people astray. There are millions of people who will be damned for eternity because of false doctrine. But what if they're sincere? You know the adage, you can be sincere, but be sincerely wrong. Now, this, that's the kind of weight that this kind of thing has. This is why Jude, again, felt compelled to based on the fact that he was aware of these false teachers, not to abide it, but to write a letter about it instead of just writing an encouraging letter about our common faith, common salvation. Instead, he wrote about this. That's how important this is. And it's no less important in our day than it was in Jude's. Case in point, there's a Mormon out there that's going to be receiving a package in the mail that hopefully will change her entire outlook, right? So pray for that, pray for that. Um, And good for you for sending it, by the way, right on. So, the angels who did not keep their first domain. Verse 7. By the way, Peter makes reference to that as well, uh, the false angels there in chapter 2, verse 4 of his second epistle, if you want to uh, read that as well. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. There's a lot there. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Abram had a nephew named Lot who ended up living in Sodom, right? And so, matter of fact, we we can't be dogmatic about it, but the fact that he was sitting at the city gates seems to imply that he had a position of some importance there. This is where the leaders of the city often would gather. And so it may be that Lot was not just a resident, but he was somewhat involved in the day-to-day goings-on. God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, but before he does, he goes to Abraham, his friend, and he decides to tell him what he's going to do. And so the Lord appears with two angels, and as the Lord begins to explain what he's about to do, Abraham begins to barter with him. It's, It's really a funny kind of interesting story and somewhat ethnically characteristic i could tell you stories about our own time in israel where this bore itself out and uh but it's really a model of intercessory prayer what is abraham doing he is pleading on behalf of any righteous in sodom and gomorrah and he starts with a hundred and notice as he's praying how willing god is to withhold judgment for the sake of however many are there Well, what if there's 100? Then for the sake of the 100, I'll spare the cities. Well, forgive me for asking, but what about if there's 90, 80, 70? It comes down to 10. All the way down to 10. Now, God is not ticked off at Abraham for pressing on this. Jesus said, ask, please ask, continue to ask, knock, please knock. You know, the idea is that of an emphatic, ongoing thing. So the heart of God is not one that he's getting tired of, okay, look, finally, just stop asking. It's not like that. For the sake of the ten, I will spare the cities. Think about that. The angels go, and they find Lot and his family to get them out of there. Now, there's not ten of them, if my count is right. There's less than ten in Lot's family, which means there were not even ten in the city. The only righteous were Lot's family. By the way, just to finish that story... When the angels come to town and they are in Lot's house, Lot, they're going to sleep out in the square. They're going to stay out in the square. Lot invites them in because he knows what could happen to them if they stay in the square. Mm-hmm. And just to emphasize it, it happens. They come to the door. They start pounding on the door, pressing against Lot as he comes outside and says, leave these men alone. They're guests in my house. What do these people want to do? These men want to come and have intimate sexual relationships with these two men. That's where the word sodomy comes from. Lot does something unthinkable. Rather than let the men have their way with his two guests, he offers to send his daughters out there to appease them. Now I say all that, not just to throw out gory details. If that's all you knew about Lot, would you assume he was righteous? (laughs) It's not until Peter writes thousands of years later. Thousands of years later, Peter mentions righteous lot. Oh, wow. I didn't get that, you know. But that's what it was, this righteousness by faith. But this was a guy who was, you know, he's a good example of what not to be, right? But that was is what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. This was the condition of these cities, okay? And just as these men came and wanted to ultimately uh, go after strange flesh, The idea was that this was unnatural. This is not God's design. Uh, You don't often point to this passage in Jude when we talk about the subject. Usually it's Romans 1 or it's Leviticus 22 or something like this. Well, Jude mentions the same thing and he talks about how it is unnatural. This is not God's design. I'm sorry, but homosexuality is a sin. When Jude brings this up, he is talking about some of the result sexual lewdness and immorality that is the result of the false teaching of these people we mentioned early in the study that um, grace was being used as a license to sin which Paul addressed very clearly right Uh, Romans 6 the idea that uh, should we therefore sin the more that grace might abound? In other words, let's demonstrate just how awesome God's grace is and how far it will cover because where grace abounds or where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more or superabounds. Well some false teachers were taking ideas like that and basically allowing for lewd behavior in that because after all God's grace covers it. In Romans 1, Paul and also Romans 16, uh, Paul talks about this idea of the obedience of faith, okay? In other words, the obedience that comes from faith. If you have faith in God, then you're naturally, if you're, if you're following Jesus, right, you're putting your trust in him, then your natural tendency should be to want to live in a way that honors him, right? Well, another word for that is obedience. We think of obedience as though it somehow is a prerequisite for salvation. It's not. It's a fruit of salvation. Um, our daughter, your kids, to varying degrees, are obedient, right, at various times, right? Will they naturally seek to obey other parents? No, not really. Hopefully they're not smart Alex, about it, but hopefully they're respectful. But they're under no real obligation to obey other people's parents, Right? Strictly speaking, they obey you. Why? Because they're part of the family. They begin to look like you. They begin to, not just in appearance, but in terms of activity and behavior. They start to reflect your character and your nature. They grow up under your guidance and such, and and they and you put out children that you want to have obey you so that they can live good, solid lives and productive lives and not get in all kinds of trouble and everything. The natural outworking of that into your kids is that they would learn to walk in obedience to that which is right. Now granted we have to sometimes punish them or take things away or whatever if they won't do it, but the point is it's good for them to do it because they'll be better for it and they'll reflect their parents. It's really not that much much of a difference when we talk about our relationship with God. We're in the family and so therefore we should reflect our Father in heaven. We should look more like him uh, people should be able to tell that we're believers by the way that we talk, the way we act, the way we interact, the way we see the world, all that kind of stuff. They should see Jesus in us and that kind of thing. That's what obedience of faith looks like. It's just a natural thing. You're not going to heaven because you do that, but because you're doing that because you're going to heaven. Right? It's the other way around. Well, these false teachers in that were teaching something completely contrary licentious behavior, living in a way that is completely dishonoring to the Lord and that kind of thing, much like it was in Sodom and Gomorrah, again, judgment will fall. Now, if you're a believer reading this letter from Paul, okay, so we've got people who didn't enter into the promised land because of unbelief. We've got uh, even angels who left their first domain and are ultimately going to be judged. They're in chains waiting in everlasting darkness. Oh, there's people like in Sodom and Gomorrah who are living lives of absolute, abject, moral poverty and and just living out licentious lives and that, they're going to be judged. If you're a believer, you're looking at this, you're, you're realizing a couple of things. Number one, what your life should look like in contrast, but also you shouldn't want to tie on with these teachers who are leading you this way. You should recognize them for what they are. In other words, call out a false teacher for being a false teacher and warn people so they don't follow them. And you don't follow them. This is the end. This is the destruction that awaits those who are misleading in this way it's a dire warning. It's serious. It's heavy because the consequences are dire and serious and heavy. You know, this is, uh, this is something that has lasting eternal impact on those who either go that way or who don't and go, who go the right way. And again, Jude is burdened deeply to make sure that this is understood. Um, so by contrast, he gives these examples here and in verse eight, he says, "Yet in the same way, these men—these men are the ones he's referring to in verse four—for certain persons who crept in unaware. Uh, yet in the same way, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Or in other words, they—they—they they, they don't take lightly true spiritual things. They talk about things they don't know anything about. Um, he'll talk about Michael and Satan as as as." Uh, Uh, sort of in this context to describe their right mindset and attitude but again notice what he says they're doing this is the fruit of their uh, their false teaching they defile the flesh they reject authority and they even revile angelic majesties or glories is literally the term there Um, to revile means to cut down and to insult and to see as a small thing to see as nothing important Well, as a false teacher, if you are teaching people that that's not important, but rather live for yourself, live for today, enjoy whatever it is you want to enjoy, God's grace covers you, whatever it is their particular way of expressing these ideas were, um, Jude is making sure there's no ambiguity. This is what these false teachers are. See them for what they are. Now, I know that doesn't sound loving and gracious. Um, There is no sense in being loving and accepting of a wolf if you're guarding sheep, right? Um, There's, we see this in multiple contexts, but uh, for for the sake of not going on a tangent, I'll just keep it on this particular one. Suppose you're shepherding sheep and that wolf is hungry. He's not eaten for a few days. He's famished. Oh, come here, little fellow. Let me give you something to eat. You want to, But of course, it's his nature to go after the sheep, right? Well, if you are kind and compassionate and let that wolf into the, the flock of sheep, you might be demonstrating compassion for this wolf, but you are demonstrating zero compassion for the victims it's about to devour. That's why Paul in Acts 20 said, I know that after my departure, ravenous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, they'll even rise up from among you. Imagine those guys hearing that. Did they stop and look around each other for a little bit and see who it might be? Who knows? They should have. You never know. One of them might have been in that group. Jesus calls us to love even our enemies, right? He doesn't call us to love our enemies and in doing so not love our brothers and sisters, right? There's not, we, we ought not foist a dichotomy onto that that doesn't exist. If you allow a wolf to continue seeking to devour sheep, you're not loving it by letting it do what it wants to do. at at the expense of somebody else. You're You're not loving a false teacher by coddling their false teaching and letting them continue because they're not only just destroying others, but they're also destroying themselves. And so to call out false teaching and false teachers, believe it or not, is actually doing them a service. Matter of fact, if I mislead you, if I teach something that is untrue and you call me out on it, you are doing me a service and anyone else around you who might be influenced by me, okay? I mean, that's how serious this is. Well, even, oh, Paul, yeah.
2: even Paul said, uh, let them be accursed, those who would preach another gospel. And, yeah. So he doesn't take it lightly.
0: Mm-mm. No. No, it's that serious. And it's not just the pastor's job, by the way. I mean, every one of us, when God puts us in an opportunity where there's an opportunity to straighten something that's not straight, again, we don't do it rudely and arrogantly and, you know, all that kind of thing. We do it in love. But you know what? You're not showing your kid compassion if you let him run across the street because you don't want to offend the driver that's coming at 80 miles an hour. You pull your kid out of the way and you yell at that driver going by, calling him all the names in the book because what they're (laughs) doing is harmful and hurtful. You know, we we ought not confuse genuine love with, uh, uh, I can't think of the opposite word I'm looking for there, but we want to make sure we understand these things and and don't take lightly, don't take lightly. Um, Wow, we are making some headway. Um, I'll finish with verse 10, or verse nine, actually, here we go. But Michael, the archangel when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, how many of you remember reading that scene where Michael and the devil were arguing over the body of Moses? It's nowhere in Scripture. It's right here. This is the one place we see it. Um, Moses is interesting. At uh, in, in the end of Deuteronomy, when he dies, it's like there's a point made that Moses did not die of old age, or he was sick, or anything like that. A matter of fact, it even goes on to kind of describe that he was still vigorous at that age, but then he just died. And then to go further, it says that the Lord buried him. Like, they didn't just have, like, a burial somewhere for him. God actually buried him on Mount Nebo, I think it was, right? And so he's buried there somewhere. Um, and the implication seems to be that God sort of just took care of that. Okay? Um, and uh Apparently, at some point, Satan wanted the body, and Michael and him were contending over it mm-hmm. and, ra- and and the point that Jude is making is not to spend a lot of time on how odd that whole thing is um, we'll talk about it for just a moment in a second but but Jude's point is that michael uh, who's called an archangel. Um, He's a big hitter, right? I mean, he's not just an angel. He's a dude, okay? Um, But even he, when it came to battling Satan, did not stick his chest out and try and rebuke Satan. He said, Lord, rebuke you. So you can imagine these false teachers, let's say Benny Hinn, who shouts at the devil, or Kenneth Copeland, shouting at the devil, like, as if the devil were threatened at all by any of us or any of them. I've never heard the devil laugh, but I guarantee you that if I started rebuking him, you might hear it through eternity into this space here. There's, there's no fear on the devil's part with me or you or any TV you know person or whatever. Uh, he's scared of Jesus. Apparently, even Michael didn't consider himself to be one to stand up against him, which should tell us something about Satan, by the way. Um, You know, if you you do some study on his person and this kind of thing, you, you kind of end up with the impression that there's the Trinity and then there's him before he was cast out, when pride was found in him. Most beautiful of God's creation at the time, voice like a pipe organ, beautiful like all these gems and crystals and this kind of thing, glorious. You could even infer from some of the description that he was the worship leader in heaven. <coughs> um, but pride was found in him; he was cast out. That beauty. As a matter of fact, what was he called before he was called Satan, which means adversary, Lucifer, which means what? Light bearer. If not for Satan's fall, you might think of calling your children Lucifer. You'd never imagine now, but it's a beautiful name. And it speaks of beauty, light bearer. This is what Satan was before he became the adversary of the Almighty. Um, You can read about that in uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and you can get a fuller picture of of him in that. So Michael doesn't stand up and and rebuke him himself, but rather he says, the Lord rebuke you. And this, of course, is the proper stance that we would take when we find ourselves in spiritual warfare. Satan, I rebuke you and cast you out. Hey, in the name of Jesus, be gone. Not in the name of Brian, that's for sure. In the name of Jesus, absolutely. Uh, It's Jesus who stood on the mountain and cast the devil into the swine and they ran off the hill. Uh, it's Jesus who cast the demons out. It's Jesus who, who, can, who was tempted with full force by Satan and stood against it, right? Not us, not us. When it comes to spiritual warfare, we have to recognize our place behind Jesus. And so Jude is making the case that these false teachers don't do that. They stand themselves up as though there's something, as though they've got authority and power in this kind of thing. And people are impressed by it, sadly. Too many are impressed by that kind of thing. That's not spiritual power. That is absurdly high level of arrogance. And it ought to be avoided on the face of it just for the arrogance of it. But to foolishly tie on with somebody like that who thinks that they stand in that kind of a place is foolhardy. You should never think of doing something like that. Now before we finish, let's talk about this whole bearing of the body of Moses and what are they arguing about kind of thing. Um, I think with good reason, Uh, people see in this Uh, some potential backing to the idea that Moses is one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. Um, Moses has these odd circumstances surrounding his death. Satan wants his body for some reason, now I'm not saying that Satan necessarily knows that he'll be one of the witnesses, but for some reason they're contending over the body, and God personally buried it. Maybe he's keeping it aside for a later purpose, right? uh, in tandem with someone like Elijah who didn't die but was whisked away in a chariot of fire in this you know uh, he never actually died maybe it's because he also has a job to do in Revelation 11 now there are other contenders for those roles um, when we get there in Revelation 11 we'll talk about the different candidates for the for the two, pro, uh, two uh, witnesses but you know Moses is definitely a, a contender for that and so we'll you know we'll find out but Uh, But this may be what is going on here behind that. Again, we can't say with certainty, but it could be. So that being said, any uh, thoughts, questions on on all that? I've got a
2: question. Yeah. Um, I know there's no scriptural reference for this fighting over the body of Moses. Is there any apocryphal or other Mm. uh, literature that...
0: There may be. It's
2: referenced in. Or
0: yeah, I've not come cares. across it personally, but there may. I mean, the be. fact
2: that he references Enoch later kind of yeah. makes you think, okay, maybe it's some other. The Testament of Moses.
0: Is it's it there? A
2: Jewish.
0: Yeah. Okay. It's Thank you for that. Because I went to Enoch to look because he references for that reason, but I didn't find it anywhere. Right. But that's okay. So the Testament of Moses, you're saying. I never even what's that Interesting. Consistent. Yeah. The Old Testament leaders, they have their own book. The Jews have their own Bible, too. Yeah. There are lots of, uh, like, deuterocanonical works out there. They're called, they're like second, uh, they're like, but they're not scripture kind of thing. But they're, um, there's lots of, I've not heard of that one, actually. So now you've got me on a chase. I'm going to figure that out. But, um, but there are writings like that. Again, Book of Enoch, uh, Book of Jasher is mentioned in scripture, but we don't know what's in it. But there purports to be a Book of Jasher. Um, there's, um, Esdras, or Second Esdras. Well, there's the apocryphal books like Tobit, Esterus. Matter of fact, Tobit's one of those places where you hear about these archangels. Uh, Raphael is mentioned in Tobit, and he's actually considered by the Catholic Church the fourth archangel. Uh, there's Michael. Uh, they say Gabriel is called an archangel. Then uh, is it Uriel? I think, and then Raphael. And so they're seen as um, as as legit archangels in that. You can also read Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness, (laughs) and uh, you can read about Tal and others like that, but but the idea of archangels and that kind of thing, uh, it is interesting. Uh, Again, we don't don't have any legit reason to say with certainty that it's real, Um, but there is a lot of writing, like on the outskirts of what's actually inspired scripture that points to some of these things, so I'll just say they're interesting. Um, but I, but again, our, our real source of knowledge and information when it comes to real divine revelation and what God has actually said is found in Scripture. Uh, even though, again, uh, those in Scripture may re- reference some of these external works, that does not necessarily mean that those entire works are inspired, or any part of them are inspired necessarily. Um, but they are references to something that was known to the author in Scripture, and he references them. So... Um, but, yeah, that's a, it's a good question, and that's a great answer. I'm going to be looking up the testimony of Moses now. Um, anyone else? Yeah, Bob. I'm
2: sure we know that the devil did never, he never got a hold of Moses' body in any way.
0: Wouldn't seem so, yeah. yeah.
2: I don't think so. But if he had, I'm sure he would have done something with the body to exalt himself or whatever, yeah. to get people's eyes off of the Lord and onto other things. We had that with uh, when they used uh, certain, um, like the, what was it, the, the rod and everything that they had in the? Uh,
0: oh, oh, right, with the bronze serpent and that? Yeah, and all
2: yeah. of that. I don't, I don't, I the whole thing. So he would have had something to slow down the body of Christ, I think.
0: Yeah, he would have used it for something yeah. ne- ne- nefarious, you know, but, uh, yeah, so, but yeah, yeah, but yeah, it does not seem that he did get it, though, apparently, you know, so,
2: yeah. We have a friend, L.A. Marzulli, who's written a series of books called He's yeah.
0: yeah, not everyone may know who hey, L.A. is, though, but yeah. Um,
2: uh, trail of Nephilim, and he has actually found skeletons and things that are... Yeah. Eight foot tall skulls that are two foot tall and stuff like actual skulls and yeah. like that. So it's kind of interesting, and he's found
0: them in different parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, there's there yeah. there there does seem to be evidence for these yeah. these giants and that kind of thing. It's after uh the
2: flood too. What's that? After the flood. Too. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and then by the way, that was the thing when uh, uh, I didn't really go back there, but when when it talks about and after, yeah. um, Goliath, was after. Goliath was after right, and so. We seem to be able to infer from that that a second attempt was made to accomplish what didn't happen in the first attempt because of the flood. Um, we don't see the event take place. There's not like another version of a Genesis 6 after the flood that you know, has details like that. But we do know, uh, you know, we know that everything perished in the flood that was on land, right? They didn't tread water or something, they, they died. Uh, those giants, the Nephilim and that. So there was apparently a second attempt after the flood uh, once again, but again, the the main purpose of that uh, ultimately was to contaminate any line from ultimately becoming the line of uh, the Messiah. And it kind of makes your reading of Luke's uh, genealogy in chapter three all the way back to Adam. You know, it's interesting. Matthew goes back to Abraham to demonstrate that Jesus is both a Jew and also is uh, has a right to the throne because he comes from David's line. But uh, and Luke also demonstrates that he goes through David, and that as well. So he's got a kingly uh, claim. But he goes back to Adam. He identifies with man. Well, you know, it's uh, when you understand some of the attempts that Satan was trying to, to do, you realize that that genealogy is important. Yeah. Joan, were you going to say
4: something? Well, wasn't that a... Is it called the second incursion or whatever when...
0: <clears throat> yeah. Um, and the,
4: when they went into Canaan and they saw giants and they right. were like grasshoppers and...
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, you know, there, there were these... You know, now, you know, that's that's a pretty dramatic description, right? I mean, that's... And they were scared to death, except for Joshua and Caleb, you know? But, but yeah, that's... This is what Satan was trying to do, apparently.
4: And it didn't say, did it? Only one? It said, and thereafter. And after that, or however... I mean, who's to say there wouldn't be another?
0: Well, there could be, although the idea of... of contaminating the line of Messiah is over now. I mean, he's already come, so there wouldn't be that purpose for it anymore. Uh, and actually, yeah, like, uh, for example, Ellie Marzuli uh, would, would uh, has said that um, when Jesus talked about in the days of Noah, right. right? Now, Jesus only mentions the idea of marrying, giving in marriage, and those kinds of things, eating and drinking. Now, he does not mention the Nephilim thing there, but the implication could be that in some way, Satan may make another attempt similar to that in some way. As a matter of fact, some people today connect that with like the vaccination and that kind of thing and affecting your DNA. It's like another attempt at ultimately um, genetically trying to alter the human race and that contaminate us. So I'm not saying whether that's true or not, but it's just, but there are connections with these ideas. And so, um, and, you know, uh, who knows, you know, but but that being said.
4: The AI stuff and transhumanism and what
1: yeah.
4: technology? What they the um, Patrick Wood talks about it, but what they're doing with technology to try to live forever, and yeah. they don't believe in God, but they believe right. that through using technology and transhumanism, they can alter the human
1: yeah.
0: race. You know, how many of you have read the Fourth Industrial Revolution? Yeah, I know you did. You read it right when it came out too. Uh, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, it's written by Klaus Schwab, who also wrote uh, COVID-19 <clears throat> The Great Reset. More recently, he wrote that book, Fourth Industrial Revolution, I think he's about three, four years old now. But he um, he is the leader of the World Economic Forum. Oh. And uh, uh, he's a, you remember back in the day when they used to hear like, when uh, E.F. When hunt talks, people listen and that kind yeah. of, well, nowadays when, when Klaus Schwab is talking, people are paying attention because he's really got his finger on the pulse of moving our world post covid uh, into a world that is not what it was, but is better. And one of the one of the pillars of the fourth industrial revolution, one of the pillars of the great reset, is the idea of transhumanism—the idea of combining biology and technology to build better people, people that can self-heal and have nanobots that can fix them, and have uh, you know, or like Elon Musk with the Neuralink and that kind of thing, you know. Um, there are, there are things about it that we see that are kind of like, wow, that's pretty amazing. You know, somebody that is missing a limb can literally feel sensations in a false limb because of Neuralink and this kind of thing. We see that, and that's amazing. But um, the question of, of humanity and how do we define it is actually because of things like AI, you know, it, uh, we have to try not to snicker, because if you've ever seen the Terminator series, you know that when Skynet becomes self-aware, it changes everything, right? And, and Elon Musk has made uh, references to those to that, you know, and technology becoming self-aware and AI being something kind of dangerous, really. Um, well, ethicists for decades have been talking about how do we define a living sentient being. Yeah, Tom.
3: Uh, yeah, you were talking about the RNA virus. RNA has nothing to do with changing DNA, but there's a technique to change DNA now that's just just simple as it can be. It's a, a CRISPR technique, mm. and everything's been changed. Probably a lot of foods you eat's been changed mm-hmm. genetically, yeah. would, uh, yeah. changed without you just even knowing it. Food's been a lot of foods, yeah. Yeah, but as far as COVID's concerned, it's just a dress rehearsal. It's just one of the little bird things. Yeah. Yeah. It is nothing, and the mark of the beast doesn't even come until the middle of tribulation. Right, right. that's a really I important point.
0: Us, <laughs> yeah. I'm 77
3: this year. I took the, I, I took the vaccine, Yeah. and uh, I'm glad I did because it's the same as if you were taking a tetanus shot or any other kind of vaccine that you had early on. Like I say, it's just a dress rehearsal for what's yeah. coming later on.
0: Well, to your point, it's it's there's a there's a big push where people are trying to make this the mark of the beast and say it is. It's not, for the reasons you just said. There's other things that will be happening when the mark of the beast happens that are not happening yet. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's the image of the beast, there's the Antichrist even being on the scene in the first place, the false prophet, all these things. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, as far as the technology goes, this is something that we are just continually getting more and more used to the idea of things changing in the most fundamental levels of our existence in that. But on the big picture, when it comes to like the, uh, uh, again, where the world is moving in terms of a great reset, one of those elements involves the idea of, of introducing AI at levels that are pervasive, uh, making a world that is, Uh, this is such a long conversation but it's it's such a central feature of this this, uh, biotechnological blending of things Um, and so you know if you consider for a moment that if a machine can become self-aware and the discussion about whether or not that makes it a living being or not because it thinks now quote unquote it's soulless but from a non- biblical worldview, that becomes, okay, now suddenly data on Star, Star Trek is a being, a person, right, sentient and all. Well, on the one hand, we say, okay, are we adding things to humanity by saying this is now considered equal to human, or are we, in fact, dehumanizing what it means to be a human being by coming from the top down with these ideas, or from the side in on these things? So these are important questions, and, and, and they have to be considered in our day, because we're living in a time where this is not sci-fi. This is actually something that governments are pushing for and moving toward and gladly embracing. Uh, and we live in one of those countries that is a leader in technology. So, John? Do
4: you think that this has to do with the, <clears throat> is it in Daniel about merging of iron and clay and the feet?
1: Iron and clay, the
0: technology oh. and humanity? Uh, no, strictly speaking, that speaks of kingdoms coming together. And so if we try to read something else into it, we're not really seeing what the passage is talking about. Um, technology could be some means by which that may happen in terms of treaties or agreements or something, but combining technology with, with like bio and tech together, that's, that's not, contextually, that's not what's in view.
4: But we do have to be careful what they inject into us because with some of the metallics mm-hmm. and all, that they can then at some point interject into the, you know, whatever
0: they give us. Yeah, I mean, anytime you put some in your body, you know.
4: That, that can be something that would interact with this mm.
0: technology. It could potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it is or not, that's there's wildly divergent ideas on that. And uh, but um, you know, in a world that is becoming far more connected with sci-fi than not, uh, it's not hard to imagine that. You know, but uh, but we do. I will say this: we do want to be careful. Uh, we want to be careful. Uh, when it comes to expertise on things. Um, I have opinions on a lot of things in this regard in these conversations and I do a lot of reading. I try to make sure I know what's going on and I, I put ideas together. I connect dots and stuff like that. But there's a point where I have to ask myself do I really have first-hand knowledge of this or not? Or am I trusting someone's word for something? And I, I couldn't begin to prove whether it's true or not. I'm choosing to trust someone and not trust someone else. We just have to be aware of that when we when we go down those roads it, not saying it's not true or couldn't be true but i can't you know i couldn't stake my life on it because i don't really know what i don't even know about this topic no, how could i really just know the
4: that? implications of yeah. what's going on today can certainly give you uh, an expectation of where it might be leading
0: yeah absolutely mm-hmm. to tom's earlier point though there will come a point where the world will kind of pass fail safe. We'll be raptured away. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of thing. And I would suggest even if even if the worst version of what we're discussing right now happened tomorrow, it would still be a vastly far distant second to what's most important. It's not unimportant. But it's it's not nearly the important thing. The important thing ultimately is the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's and so we just want to make sure that even though we're learning about these things and watching things unfold in breathtaking speed before us, what without without trying to sound you know too simplistic about it, um, the, the, it, it really just tells us that the priority is to make sure that we're bringing people to a place of recognizing their eternal state because. Um, you're going to die of something, whether it's a shot or, or walking out to the car. I mean, it's like, you know, you know so, so at the end of the day, it's not like it's not important, but there's something that is vastly more important, you know, and so um, we just want to make sure we keep our priority on that kind of stuff. Uh, and an eye on the news and an eye on reading things and watching what's going on. I, I think it's really important to be aware of what's going on around us, you know. Our kids certainly, certainly are growing up in a world that if we don't understand it, they're going to have to face it alone and try and figure it out. So um, it's good to know what's going on as best we can.
2: You when know. we're raptured out of here, I said I preached the trip too. Yeah. It may be numbers of years before the Antichrist could come on the scene. Right. It's not like immediately. It doesn't have to be. Can right? imagine what the world will be thinking during that period of time because all these people just left and how will people explain that and what will things be going on before the Antichrist would come on with Perfect time to come in to kind of pacify everybody to set up a peace treaty. So, you know, yeah. I think that's going to be bad even before the wrath of God comes down in seven years. I still think that period of time for the Antichrist, if the church is raptured up three years, two years, whatever it is, it's going to be crazy.
0: Yeah. Well, if you think
2: here and things and how people curse God and also believe in alien... All this other stuff would begin yeah. to be true to a lot
0: of people. Yeah, well what do they say when you rule out the truth no matter how absurd yeah. it's got to be... Some absurd thing could be the answer, you know? Well if you think about it, when Paul talks about the restrainer being taken out of the way mm-hmm. I believe that's the Holy Spirit in the church. Mm-hmm. Like the Holy Spirit will still be around but his activity in the church will cease. Yeah. And so um, if you think about the fact that the church is in the world right now, and how completely off the rails it's going, even with us here, imagine when that restraint is taken away, like there's nothing stopping this thing from rolling full bore, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of frightening to think about what this world would look like without believers in it, you know, um, yeah, I mean, thankfully on Sunday, like we looked at, we started to see where there's going to be a massive you know uh, harvest during that time still you know but the conditions that that's going to take place under are going to be pretty pretty bizarre so yeah but again doesn't that just make the point you know we're, we're punching out one day soon so let's be about our master's business so all right well let me pray uh, everyone's got to go and uh how about that we did more than two verses tonight i think we started at six we got to verse nine or ten or something so, all right. Well, Father, thank you for our time tonight. We just praise you for this word and ask that as we continue to read it, that we would glean, learn, apply, uh, Lord, that you would just use this to, to do in us what you would. Help us to be aware of what's going on around us, that we might uh, not be ignorant of the enemy's devices, but at the same time, help us to recognize the importance of, of being on mission. And so help us to, to, to see those opportunities that you give us to bring the gospel into a conversation, to... Bring the truth of your word, because it's your word that doesn't return void—not mine or anyone else's. It's your word that ultimately accomplishes what you set it forth to do. So, help your word, uh, whether it's exactly the verse, which of course is the best thing, but even if it's just so permeates our thinking that our worldviews are so saturated uh, by by knowing your will and your purposes, by knowing your word, that our conversations themselves would just be a, uh, would just be uh, just uh, peppered with your truth, and that would ultimately be used by you to bring people to a a saving faith. So we thank you and we praise you. We bless you for uh, giving us these opportunities to grow together and to have these discussions and to build up one another's faith. And we just pray that, Father, that would just continue in the days to come until that day comes and we go home. So thank you, Father. We just praise you for all this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, everybody.